0: Aerodynamically the car is quite strong and when we need to use you know, more of that downforce in, in a wet weather setup it's, it's there and you know, again gives confidence and I think anybody when you're racing in the rain confidence translates a lot time.
1: On this episode of Turned In we have Andrew Votichko who is a team owner and race engineer for AWA who are a team competing in the IMSA Sports Car Championship in North America. So for those of you who don't know us, it is Tim and Andre from High Performance Academy here. And today we are talking all about the GT4 platform uh, in the sports car racing world. Really what's uh, involved with getting the most out of one of those cars. These are cars that are all built in the factory. You essentially receive this brand new, shiny thing with uh, some level of documentation, and said, "Good luck, go for it." <laughs> and I thought uh, one of the interesting things we talked about with Andrew was, you know, what does that sort of uh, what does that process look like when you receive this thing? How do you commission it? How do you understand it? How do you go about uh, figuring out, you know, which levers to pull to make this thing go fast?
2: Because the the GT four class is designed to be. Slightly slower, but a lot more cost-effective to run than the upper echelons of GT3 and GTE, I'm correct? Yeah, absolutely. A lot more road car components that are used out of the box. So on that basis, there there is, as we'll find out as we talk to Andrew, a, a lot less tunability than the likes of a GT3 or GTE, but there are certain components still that are, are really important to dial in.
1: Yeah, I think uh, on that, it was kind of quite striking talking to Andrew. Uh, it was very obvious that he... Uh, finds he finds himself quite limited to the number of things he says available to him he, he, there was a lot of if we had this or I wish we had this or if I could have one thing it would be this yeah. um, but I think that, that doesn't that doesn't take away from the engineering challenge involved um, and I think maybe in some ways being more limited has forces you into more creative you know solutions and stuff which i you know i really like the idea of.
2: Yeah definitely and I think when you've got a uh, hundred different items that you can tweak or modify or change out then then the scope becomes almost limitless and when you, you pair that down to, to a handful of, of levers that you can pull uh, then each of those levers becomes more important and I guess the other aspect is the, the subtlety of the changes that you're making with those different components becomes much more powerful to the end result. Absolutely and I think that's probably very intentional on the part of the GT4 class. You
1: know, overall, like you mentioned that these things are cheaper to run. They're also supposed to be easier to run for a team. Sure. You know, you want to make this as accessible as possible to as many levels of team. You don't want to have to have a, a whole team of engineers that can there to set the car up and to, you know, analyse all the data that comes with it and all of the processes and procedures that you have when you've got a really sophisticated high-end sports car. So, you know, by the sounds of it, you know, that class is probably doing, you know, what it was set out to do.
2: Yeah I think we've seen this drive right through motorsport all around the world and across all classes up to including F1 which is that constant drive to bring the budgets and the cost caps down Mm -hmm. so that that more people can get involved and I mean GT4 definitely seems as you said like a a solution to that problem.
1: It's a natural situation if I look back at the the genesis of GT3 I don't know let's say 15 years ago even some the really maybe it was 10, 15 I don't really know exactly but Those cars were essentially what we have as a GT4 car now. And you get that natural evolution. They start somewhere and over time, you know, whether it's... Like a creep. Exactly. And now there's there's even a GT3, which is designed as a customer racing platform, extremely expensive to run. Yeah. Uh, And I have no doubt that GT4 will end up in the exact same place and we will have GT5 (laughs) in a few years. I have absolutely no doubt. But uh, one of the things that we did spend... uh, I wouldn't say a lot of time talking about, it, it was interesting to touch on with Andrew was the role of bump stops as far as suspension tuning and that really came into uh, one of the tools that maybe isn't necessarily completely obvious to people that you would have. You, you, we talked about a limited number of things we could change. Um, based on Andrew's, some of Andrew's responses, we learned that he was maybe a little cagey about wanting to talk some of, about some of that, which was, you know, it means we hit on a bit of a nerve, which was great.
2: It was interesting. Before the interview, we we specifically asked Andrew if there were any areas that were uh, sort of off the radar and and he didn't want to talk about. And, and and he had nothing. But yeah, as you say, clearly when we got onto the role of bump stops, uh, that became a bit of a, a sensitive subject. So obviously, it was a bit quiet. of performance yeah. to be to be gained there.
1: Yeah, exactly. And and bump stops really are one of those things. You know, people talk a lot about springs, dampers, uh, tire. Tire tuning, whether it's pressures or temperatures and stuff like that, and bump stops, you know, really are up there with some what should be considered up there as you know just as important as some of those other components. And people probably don't talk about them as much. So anyway, I think people will find that that part of the discussion pretty interesting.
2: Yeah, absolutely.
1: And that ties in pretty well uh, to an Instagram post that we put out not too long ago on the High Performance Academy Instagram page, which was all about the concept of bump to rebound ratio for your dampers, and it. This is something that, whenever we talk about it, it tends to get a few people fired up. People love to tell us that we're, uh, you know, we've got it all wrong and we don't know what's going on. But really, what this is about is making sure that when you set your coilovers up and you set your ride height, that you are getting. Uh, the damper sitting in that right range of their travel
2: such that you've got sufficient travel in uh, droop or rebound and bump slash compression. I think it goes a little deeper than that as well because a lot of the enthusiast level coilovers that uh, the, the street or weekend warrior are likely to be putting in their cars you know, people put them in without any really real understanding of bump to rebound ratios or even looking at where the wheel and tyre combination is going to sit at at full bump, uh, full compression travel mm-hmm. uh, and then this sort of has a knock on effect of moving into the main core topic which is actually also setting our, our ride height and uh, the arguments for and against setting the ride height by adjusting the spring perch or setting the ride height by adjusting the bottom mount on the on the coilover. So, give us your take. The, the argument we always hear is that if we adjust the ride height by the spring perch, that's going to affect the spring rate. So.
1: Yeah, for sure. And this is something you know I understand why people intuitively end up being a bit tripped up on this because it kind of I, I can visualize. You know, I understand. Essentially, what's going on is. Uh, for a linear spring which is by far the most common type of spring you're ever going to come into contact with, whether it's in the aftermarket world or the motorsport world. uh, A linear spring, all that means is that as you apply force to it, uh, the step in displacement you get or how much it compresses
2: for a given amount of force is constant throughout its whole rate. So, so I mean, Chuck, a 10kg per millimetre spring, if we're working in, in metric, put 10kgs on the top of it, compresses one millimetre. Add another 10kgs, compresses another millimetre and so on and so forth. So the important point to take out of that is the spring rate never changes for a linear rate spring no matter how much it's compressed.
1: Exactly, and, and the thing that really trips people up there is when you... Uh, people are often uh, reluctant to make ride height changes on the spring perch because it adds what people call preload to the spring Isn't right. it? when the damper is fully extended so let's say uh, the car's jacked up for example, so there's no weight on that corner of the car, you take the spring perch you wind it up such that it's got a static compression on it when the damper is fully extended and the the misconception there is that by doing that, that you're going to now you've now increased the stiffness of your suspension. Now let me be very clear, that's not what you've done. It's uh, the rate, as Andre said before, is constant regardless. What does happen is that you do have an initial force, an extra force, or an additional force that needs to be overcome when the car initially sits on the ground. Mm-hmm. The reality is, for any practical combination of spring stiffness, car weight that initial force is always going to be overcome by the static weight of the car. So as soon as the car's sitting on the ground, the initial force is overcome and you really have no difference, certainly no difference from a, a uh, spring stiffness or suspension stiffness perspective, doesn't matter. Huge amount of preload, no preload, exactly the same stiffness.
2: Yeah, absolutely. I mean there are other aspects we need to keep in mind. Obviously it's not ideal to have the spring become non-captive for it, uh, full droop but there's helper springs or keeper springs to to fix that situation. Sure. And, and I think really we'll finish this off by saying that the good rule of thumb to at least start with is that if we measure the overall amount of travel that our coilover or suspension provides and we really want to start from our natural rider height position to provide about two thirds of that travel and compressional bump and the other third in rebound or extension. That, that That's a good starting point in your book. For sure. That's, that's a pretty widely in, agreed uh,
1: position in, in, in the industry, certainly to start from. There's no reason you need to stay there 100% stick to that hard and fast, but it's very, a very good starting point. The other thing I think we haven't touched on here that we should at least mention is that uh, the part of the the other side of this equation when people say, look, I'm not going to adjust my ride height at the spring perch because I don't want preload, uh, they're doing that at that low amount. So a lot of modern coilovers have two adjustment points. One will be a threaded section on the spring perch and the other is at the point where the damper attaches to whatever part of the suspension your damper attaches to. Yep. And the, our recommendation is to, that that low amount point is designed to set the wheel in the correct position and get yourself in that right travel window. Yep. And after that, all of your ride height changes should really be being made on the spring perch.
2: Yep, Absolutely. And if you do want to learn more about that, we do have a complete course that covers motorsport suspension and wheel alignment uh, and will actually teach you how to perform your own wheel alignment. That sounds like it might be beyond the scope of a lot of people but you'll actually find out through that course it can be done very quickly, very easily and for not a huge outlay of cash using a string alignment system. If that sounds a bit backyardish, don't worry, you'll find that exact same system used right up to the highest echelons of motorsport. So you can check that course out and you can also purchase it using our coupon code PODCAST75, that will give you $75 off your first HPA course and we'll chuck a link in the description that will get you through to that course. I think with that out of the way Tim, let's get into our interview. Let's go. So we've got Andrew Wojciechko here, Andrew is a team owner and race
1: engineer for AWA that are a Canadian sports car race team that compete in the IMSA Michelin Pilot Challenge. Welcome to the show, Andrew. Great to have you here, mate.
0: Yeah, great to see you guys.
1: So um, tell us a little bit about where you're from, Andrew, where you're based, where you went to school, what you've done, to how you got to where you are now.
0: Sure. So I'm located in uh, Caledon, East Ontario. Uh, that's where we run the, run the team out of. Um, so I went to, I mean, my, my engineering degree I did at, uh, at Ryerson. Uh, university in uh, downtown toronto um but uh, probably before that you know I, um my dad kind of gave me a really cool start into all things mechanical and uh i remember from like grade school stuff with science fairs and you know i wanted to build all this stuff and he was like you know before you're we gonna start cutting any material you're gonna you're gonna draw it in cad and i was like no we don't need to do that but he, uh, he, pushed me to, you know, learn CAD at a really young age. And, uh, I remember building like RC hovercrafts and all this cool stuff for like school science projects. And then, um, you know, when I was like 13, I was really into skateboarding and, you know, a lot of, a lot of friends stopped cracking decks all the time on big stair drops. And I was like, I, I want to try something different. So I was keen to make these aluminum skateboards and, uh, I remember my dad getting like right behind me and, you know, started this business and, you know, all of a sudden like you know, helped me get the CNC mill in the, you know, the little two car garage at home. And <laughs> I was, you know, producing these uh, aluminum skateboards and um, it never, never really went anywhere as a, like a, a big business, but uh, it was certainly a, a great learning experience. And yeah, I think, um, you know, having access to, you know, that type of equipment and knowledge and, you know, being given those opportunities definitely helped open, um, you know, the path to to where I am today. So um, I went to, yeah, my engineering at Ryerson and was pretty keen to, to get into the FSAE stuff, the Formula SAE program where you build a, a you know, less than 600cc single seater. Um, did that there in my first year, left that alone for a little bit and then came back to it um, once I kind of got my studies sorted out for my final year, and really fell in love with it. Um, the team element was super cool. Uh, you know, I got to work with the, the lead suspension designer on that on that build, and then also drove. Um, and we ended up with a top ten at Detroit when that was still the, the competition with all the schools uh, before they split it into the East West. So it was uh, was just an amazing experience and. Uh, while i was in you know at ryerson doing that program um uh, i was getting into the just you know cars as a as a passion and you know i started doing some solo one some like time trial stuff and was doing pretty well with that in in the driver capacity um and then you, coupled with the, the engineering stuff it was all like fitting together quite well and by the time we were f- I was finishing up school my dad and I had started to build our first road race car. So we built a, you know, built a race prep shop at the family home and, uh, started building our first road race car. And we built this nine for four turbo. And the year I graduated, we we campaigned that in the Ontario super GT championship and not much competition, but, uh, won the championship that year, which was super cool. Um, and uh, I remember at that time watching like Speed Roll Challenge and absolutely loving every minute of that and just wanting to be a part of that. So we made a switch to a touring car program for the next year and started developing these Lexus IS300s. Um, and uh, we had the benefit of starting from uh, some work that had been done by a previous team with some factory support. So kind of you know bought everything used for 10 cents on the dollar and and started going with that running in the Canadian Championship with the goal of, of you know doing the world challenge stuff. And uh yeah, that's kind of where we, you know, spent the next four or five years running the Lexus program. And I feel really fortunate to have done that at that time because I feel like that era has passed. You know, that was the time when we were still building cars, you know, we were building building tubs um you know and it had a little more freedom to design and build than we do today, um, and got to learn a lot of things the hard way. So
2: now you're really focusing more on factory built race car.
0: Yeah, exactly. So today now with homologated race cars, um, the manufacturers are tasked with the build and, you know, any changes or anything we need now, we really need to channel through our manufacturer, force it through the homologation process. And that way it, you know, it keeps a, a uniform, even playing field for, um, for the competition but you don't learn the same amount as an engineer that I, I feel that I, I had the opportunity to learn when we were building the cars mm-hmm. um it was expensive it was time intensive you know because you're learning things through testing and development and failure um which as a one as a, as an independent team is is a difficult way to do it um, but I don't regret it at all uh, I feel like those years that I You know, when we were doing kind of everything as a small team from um, designing, building, campaigning, driving, um, I think that what I've learned there has really helped open doors, you know, every year thereafter. So I'd say it was probably 2009 when I made the decision to stop really pursuing the driving goal. And I definitely think from like through university and then those, you know, four or five years after, had the hopes of the, you know, the pro driver route and was you know chasing that um and the more i got to understand what was involved with that the more i realized that it wasn't sustainable for me and that wasn't the right path and i still wanted to be active in the sport and that's where um you know the engineering side really allowed me to 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 do that and um you know from then on started doing uh, freelance engineering for teams with a you know, RSX and Canadian Touring Car and then a Formula 2000 uh, in the USF 2000 Championship where we got the got the win with Remy Adet there, the overall, which is pretty cool. From there um, to GT3 Cup uh, with Speed Merchants and Jim Hodnot um, got to meet some amazing clients and really started to understand customer racing there. Um, he ran a great program and yeah, I learned so much from him. Um, and again, that really helped to you know, just one year at a time, kind of understand the sport better and, you know, continue to open open doors. Um, I also did the uh, uh, Continental Tire Sports Car Challenge program that year where I was engineer and uh, strategist for uh, Ashley McCallman and Brad Sandberg with CKS. Um, so I was doing those two at the same time. And, you know, that was kind of my first uh, first chance to do strategy and start to understand the endurance uh, racing side of it with the two driver lineup um, and just started to realize how much I had to learn there as well. Um, from there, uh, when Speed Merchants decided to close up, one of the clients that was racing with them wanted to you know, continue and uh, that was Anthony Mantella. So I spoke to him and we put a program together and, and that was the birth of Mantella Autosport and really the first program that I was running full-time um and we started with the aston martin uh from Multimatic, and that was yeah 2014 so put that program together and then we um we ran in a host of different cars over the next uh four years so from the aston martin to the z28r camaros from pratt and miller to the ktm crossbows um got to experience a whole bunch of different platforms and uh, yeah it was a it was a really good experience that way again got to grow and understand a lot more about the you know team manager role which i think helped prepare me for where i am now where you know once anthony had decided to you know, to wrap that up that was ready to step on my own two feet and and start my business and here we are today with the uh, awa and it's our our fourth year now already since we started Mm. so
1: so so tell us uh, so AWA you guys are a single car team and running in the IMSA championship is that right
0: that's it yeah Uh, Michelin Pilot Challenge single car uh, McLaren 570s GT4
1: and tell us a little bit about uh, how IMSA works how the there's a few different tiers of IMSA and obviously it's multi-class in each one of those so where do you guys fit into the mix there
0: Sure. So within the pilot challenge, there's the GS class and the TCR class, GS class being the faster cars, they're GT4 based, TCR being the touring car class. We are we run all at the same time, um, but are scored separately. So two classes in the pilot challenge. And we race on all the same weekends as the WeatherTech Championship, which is considered the, the top tier um, in IMSA. They do the 24-hour Daytona, the 12-hour, where on those weekends we'll do a four-hour mm-hmm. or a two-hour. Um, but, uh, yeah, that's, that's kind of how the structure and says is, is laid out. Those are the, I'd say the two, two main series with the weather tech and then, uh, the pilot challenge, there are others, some single make stuff and then, uh, the LMPC. but, uh, I think that's the the bread and butter anyways.
1: Yeah. And, and is, um, you guys run different race formats. Is that right? Like some shorter races and some longer races?
0: That's correct. So we'll do a four hour at Daytona and then a four hour at Watkins Glen, all our others are two hours.
2: And just to come back to the the WeatherTech uh, series as well, so that's where uh, people viewing would have seen the faster cars, GT3 and GTE, those are competing in, in the WeatherTech series?
0: That's correct, yeah. So here they'll call it um, GTD, which is your GT3-based cars, and then GTLM, which is the GTE uh, category cars, and then the, the prototype classes Yeah. yeah. The,
2: just for interest sake, could you give us a, a bit of an indication on what the, the different relative lap speeds are between the lights of your GT4 and, and maybe the GTLM at, the, sort of, at the, the top of the pecking order? Obviously, lap times are going to vary depending on the track, but can you sort of give us maybe a percentage difference?
0: Yeah, just thinking through some uh, sample tracks here where we are at relative to the GTD cars.:
1: I mean, I would have thought you're probably in the, say five percent sort of range.
0: We're talking about there. I think that'd be fair. Yeah. yeah to the
1: GTD. Yeah, and then yeah. GTLM is what probably.
0: Yeah, that
1: sounds about right. One to 2% faster again, but uh, you've got all pro drivers in that class and that's kind of part of the mix as well. Right. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And so
1: can you tell us this, for maybe people who aren't as familiar with, with sports car racing, um, what is GT4? How does, how does that work? Uh, what are the cars based on and, and how does that work for a customer racing team like you guys?
0: Yeah, so the GT4 category is made up of a a host of different manufacturers. Um, Most of the companies, most of the manufacturers are there now. So, I mean, you have everything from, you know, Ford Mustang, um, Chevy Camaro, Porsche Cayman, Aston uh, Vantage, uh, our McLaren 570S, GT4. Um, What else is running there right now? I think -hmm. that's the bulk of the field, but... I think any manufacturer that has a suitable sports car can entertain having it homologated for GT4 competition. Uh, the big difference between GT4 and GT3 is its, you know, target lap performance and then its cost. Um, GT4 cars right now are, are around half the price of the, the GT3 hardware. Um, and then, like you said, we're about 5% difference on mm-hmm. the, on the lap speed. Um, I assume
2: you're also looking at a substantial saving in actual running costs per racing kilometre for GT4 compared to the likes of the GTD or GTLM?
0: That's it. There's a cost per kilometre savings, but then there's also a significant reduction in running kilometres on a Pilot Challenge Championship versus uh, GTD and WeatherTech. So, I mean, we do, I think, 24 hours of race time in a full season where, you know, GTD car will do that at Daytona alone um so when you start looking at it that way yeah the the mileage difference Mm. is substantial and that's where a lot of the cost is and
1: how close to a road car is it is your mclaren
0: our mclaren is closer to the road car than most of the other cars in the category and i think that just stems from it starting from um a supercar platform that a lot of the road going components were at a fairly high level to begin with um and also its cost was quite high to start so they had to be conscious of that when deciding what to change to full-on race parts and, and what they didn't. Um you know the Mustang that we campaigned had you know proper race engine, uh, sequential gearbox, um other stuff, you know, with full motorsport harness and stuff like that, uh Multic PDM, where that car was, you know, truly a, a full full-on race car. Uh where our McLaren uses full-on production uh, wiring loom, um it's the standard engine. It's um, yeah standard ECU and electronics, no PDM, uh, nothing the likes of that. Um, so slightly different way to mm. to achieve the same result, really. Um, each have their strengths. obviously
1: there are quite a few race sort of components on it. You must have like dampers, brakes, stuff like this, some suspension stuff. It must be quite different, is that
0: right? Yeah, still a decent amount of updates on it. Uh, it uses all the standard wishbones just with um, a low friction bushing as opposed to like a rubber compliance bushing on the road car. Uh, brakes have recently been uh, updated with a different variant. So within these GT4 cars, you'll see some different variants approved in parts. So sometimes we'll have options that allow a car to be better suited to endurance racing like IMSA. So now we have a proper Alcon um, high volume pad, which wasn't the case before. Um what else? Yeah. Penske dampers on the, on the race car, which are unique uh, to the GT four, as opposed to the road car. Um, But powertrain wise, it's all, all mostly road car components. Uh, Not many changes. You mentioned
1: earlier about not really having much technical freedom compared to say what you might have 10 years ago, where you can build a car of your own. Is there actually anything on the car at all that you can build or is essentially everything must be bought off the shelf? Uh,
0: so when it came to adapting it for IMSA, you know, we were doing fabrication work to get like the right side nets and, and to meet all of the IMSA requirements for stuff like that because the car didn't ship with, with some of the stuff to meet uh, those regulations. All our setup equipment, we design and machine um, and fabricate. Uh, so that's something. While we can't make much on the car, we still spend a lot of time with all of our equipment and, and anything we can do to improve our processes and stuff like that. We've, we kind of channel our uh, energy into, into that side of it. So being able to do quicker setups on the pad and um, mm. good consistency there, um, mm. things yeah, like makes that. makes sense.
1: And you guys obviously have a bit of equipment in-house to be able to do that yourself?
0: Yep. Um, we're It's a small shop, but uh, it's got a lot of capability. So we have um, a full metal shop, uh, fabrication and machining. Um, we have a wood shop so we can do patterns and work upstairs Um, and then the dedicated car shop Um, we've got uh, shock dyno in-house yeah so anytime we need to make something we can typically turn it out right right in our own facility
2: there's so many different cars running in the series uh, understandably there's going to be uh, some inherent performances performance advantages and disadvantages in certain areas so uh, we we hear a lot about BOP or balance of performance and uh, can be a little bit controversial I guess from time to time but can you just talk us through sort of the broadly what uh, what BOP is and how it's how it's applied to the cars
0: sure so BOP is a balance of performance and it's a difficult task that the series has to face because you um, you know, everybody wants to win. So anytime, uh, you know, manufacturer isn't on the top step, well, they want to know why. And, you know, they're going to be going to the series and, and trying to, you know, lobby for, for performance. Um, so it's a difficult role that the series is is tasked with there. What they, what they do is look at the displayed performance. So they will take the, the previous event, they'll review the performance of all the cars, um, and they will... Come up with a percentage plus or minus whether the car was too strong or or not performing well enough, and then based on that they will make um, an adjustment to the cars for the next event. So tools that they have to work with are um, mass, power, um, alignment limitations. Uh, those are those are the bulk of them, uh, um, and they will determine you know which variety thereof they'll apply, and it it's car specific on what each car can or cannot do. Some cars have the ability to do different engine maps for higher or lower performance where others don't have that option. Um, and that's partly just part of the GT4 class where a lot of road car components are used and don't necessarily have the ability to do you know, map switching or power sticks, stuff like that.
2: Just, just in terms um, so of
0: that's what they do, and when you look at it, it's it's a competitive and close. In series. terms
2: of of getting a, a specific lap time, there's obviously a few different ways that can be achieved, and you can have a car that's stronger in top end speed and, and loses a little bit in cornering. So, when when they're applying BOP, uh, are they trying to establish a consistency in terms of just the overall lap time, and and how the individual cars get that lap time doesn't matter. Or are they actually trying to maintain a consistency in terms of cornering performance and straight line speed between the different manufacturers?
0: Yeah, so they'll break it down into you know low, low, medium, 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 high, and high speed, and put a weight on each of the ranges. So what they're trying to do is make sure it's not just a lap time parity, but raceability parity, um, because like you said, you can have a car make lap speed in, in different ways. Um, but not necessarily race well together that way. And I I think that's important that they consider that that aspect of it. And that way everybody has a good chance to put on a good show. Um, whereas if you you know you have the one car that's got all the straight line performance, um, you know, that's advantageous for passing situations and can potentially defend in, in the low speed section. So yeah, it's not easy to get that evened out all the time. But I think that's definitely the goal.
2: Generally, when it comes to parity, there's there's not too many people that end up happy with the overall result. Particularly if you were on the top step of the podium, and uh, all of a sudden you're facing some some BOP penalties. Uh, But in general, is it assumed that, or is it understood that they're doing a pretty good job with getting the parity right?
0: Yeah, I think so. I, I mean, you watch the broadcast. I think the the racing is close. Um, when you look at the times, you know, the spread is close as well. And um, I, I hear this frequently that the the IMSA GT4 category is regarded as the most challenging and hardest fought GT4 category worldwide. Um, and that's just really cool and special to be a part of. Um, so I have a lot of respect for the the people that are making these decisions and understand that you know they're under a lot of pressure to get it right. Um, you know, a lot of people are investing a lot of money to be there and, you know, everybody wants to feel they have a, a shot at it, but at the end of the day, the sport is only going to allow one winner, you know, per event and yeah, it can be, uh, it can be challenging for sure.
1: Is that process that they're undertaking? Is there any subjectivity in that or is the, the formula that they're using to, uh, balance the cars, uh, is that exposed to you? or is, is that essentially just secret and you don't have any, you don't know what calculations they're doing behind the scenes.
0: We get to see less of it now than we used to. Um, so we just have to trust that they're, um, mm-hmm. you know, making good decisions for the right reasons. And I, I think, it, mm-hmm. I, I feel like they are doing a good job with that. So yeah, before we used to have, um, We used to be able to see more of the sector times, um, but it allowed the teams to understand the BOP process maybe a bit too well. Um, So IMSA elected to reduce what we can see um, to to try to prevent that from happening and just to allow the racing to happen naturally and for them to get an accurate read on what's going Mm -hmm. on.
1: So let's get a bit more into the topic we really want to dig into today, which was really just a bit of a general overview on car setup and philosophy and stuff. So for a start, uh, what, what sort of setup changes can you make to your car? What sort of things uh, can you tweak on the car?
0: So adjustable dampers. Uh, so we have two-way adjustable damper on the 570 uh, bump and rebound. Uh, our alignment is open as long as we're meeting our minimums. So we have a minimum ride height which that changed coming into the next event for us. Um, but as long as we meet the minimums when we pass through tech, it's up to us to determine what we want to do for how low we want to run and, and chassis rake and, and that. Um, we have adjustments for alignment within bounds by Michelin. So Michelin will set a maximum camber that they feel is safe to run the tire at. We have to abide by and stay you know below those values. But we Outside of that, we have control over our cambers. Our toes are completely up to us. Any roll bar positions, um, wing positions, that is the bulk of it.
1: Yeah. And when you say that Michelin control, well, they, they obviously it's pretty normal for a tire manufacturer to come in and say, here's the toe and camber, that you, the maximum toe and camber that you can run. Is that Does that become part of the scrutineering process for you guys as far as being disqualified or it's more it becomes an argument between you and the tire manufacturer where they, they come and tell you off for running too much camber?
0: It was originally an argument with the tire manufacturer, but it has now been established right. and enforced. So yeah. our our upper limits are our upper limits.
2: Got you. Got you. Do you also have a minimum on tire pressure as well?
0: They do provide minimum pressures, but they've been focusing on the cambers um, more so. But yes, there are pressures and camber limits um, specified by Michelin.
1: And are they coming, do you guys have TPMS on board or are they doing this with a pressure gauge? How are they actually checking the pressures you guys are running?
0: They used to be in our box, but since covid um i haven't had a michelin yeah, okay um uh, tech with us
2: <laughs> Mixed blessing. yeah
0: so um they were doing it just with a yeah they were just doing it with a pressure gauge before we do not have tpms on the mclaren some of the other cars in the series do um but no we do not yeah
1: okay and that actually brings up another question i had about that do you guys have telemetry or is that not allowed for your series
0: we are not allowed to transmit live data from the car so strictly um, logged on on the car and then downloaded after session. So we rely heavily on the driver to communicate mm-hmm. what they're experiencing and anything coming up on the dash because mm-hmm. um, we can't see it on the box. Yeah,
1: got you. So as far as setup changes, you've we've gone through a little bit about what what you guys can adjust. Is there anything on the car that you can't adjust that you would particularly like to be able to adjust?
0: I'd really like to have uh, adjustments with the diff, but uh, our car runs an open diff and we have nothing we can do there. Uh, So from working with cars with easily adjustable diffs and then even ones where you had to take them apart to make the changes, um, it's very powerful and very effective and to lose that is um, sometimes you're just not working with all the tools. Uh, so that would be something I would... Uh,
2: yeah. Are they using anything tricky like uh, applying the inside brake out of low speed corners to sort of give a uh, an LSD effect or is it literally just an open diff and wheel spin is a potential problem?
0: It does uh, use stability control. Um, so setup-wise, it's something we need to be mindful of. If we're too aggressive on the setup, we can induce excessive stability interference. Um and slow the car down unnecessarily and also use up, uh, rear brakes. So yeah, it's something we need to be mindful of. Um, it's again, because this car doesn't use a full on Bosch motorsport ABS and traction control. Um, it has a lot of the road car tendencies in, in some of these areas. So it is something that I need to be mindful of when I'm, when I'm doing the setup to not get, not get too aggressive and not, uh, Make sure we're not inducing too much wheel spin.
1: Mm. And the I assume the mapping for things like stability control, traction control, this is a je- I guess, race car specific. This isn't what they're using in the road cars?
0: The the track track mode is from what I understand yeah. um altered from the road car. So yeah, it is specific to this, but um we still have kind of the same adjustment range as the road car as far as you know, we have a sport sport track. Um, that we can pick from so we will use some of the other modes in uh, severe wet weather Um, and i've got to be honest the car is phenomenal in the rain so what they've got there does work well and once we've understood it even in the track track mode with its limitations i think once we understood it and know how to work with it um, again it works it works really well and it's something that you know both of our drivers are able to work with and um, you know, Ori that, that, you know, typically starts our races, um, and qualifies, he's felt very comfortable in this car where, when we were in the 718, um, didn't have as much confidence. So this car seems to suit him very well. And, and, you know, he's done an absolute bang up job in it. You know, he put the car P two at Sebring in qualifying his best ever, which, you know, that was, that was pretty phenomenal.
1: Would you say it's the car's great in the wit. What do you think it is that makes it great in the wet? What sort of characteristics or you know qualities that the car's got means it makes it so good in the wet?
0: I mean, if we go back to basics, it's a low center of gravity car with you know decent track width, wheelbase, so it's got good stability and and low load transfer to begin with. Um, all things that you you know love to have in any race car. So I think we just we start with you know a supercar platform that meets all those requirements, and um, I think that's a big help there. Uh, aerodynamically the car is quite strong Um, and when we need to use more of that downforce in in a wet weather setup it's it's there and again gives confidence and I think anybody when you're you're racing in the rain um, confidence translates to lap time and having that is is a big help Uh, and then I think that the stability programming that's in it works well it does a good job to uh, again give driver confidence and allow to run good lap speed without you know big mistakes so i think that's a big part of it mm-hmm.
2: some of the uh the factory stability control traction control and, and abs can prove to be somewhat overbearing when you take that car and put it on a racetrack it sounds like from what you're saying there that works exceptionally well in the in the wet but it, it sounded like you're maybe insinuating that in the dry you need to be a little bit more mindful of staying away from some of the the electronic assistance is is that correct?
0: That's it. Yeah. If you drive into it too hard, if you have, you know, if you've got too much yaw in the car coming off a corner, it's going to derate. And, you know, there's a time, time where you'll be back before you're back to full full throttle. Um, it's not the same kind of like ignition cut instant on and off that you would have with a, a more advanced traction race traction control. Um, so there's you know, some time delays before it restores uh, full power. And you, know, you can induce that sometimes by using really aggressive exit curving. Or by driving the car too aggressively, and you know if, if it's sideways, it's going to start to to pull that out, and that's where you know the drivers, you know, we're really lucky. You know, our, our pro Kuna Whitmer's got a lot of time in the car and has a good understanding for how to get the most from it, and I think that's shown this year with with the performances. You know, we've got to, he just does a great job in there, and you know, we're really lucky to have him with the program.
1: And when you say uh, having too much yaw on the car at exit, you're essentially saying trying to stop the driver sliding the car too much at exit to sort of hang the tail out too much. Yeah, exactly. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So it sounds like that needs to be pretty the fast um, way to drive this car.
1: Sounds like that need to be pretty, uh, I guess you have to be pretty mindful on the way you're driving it. Almost even a little bit on the side of being a little unnatural as far as being having a bit of
0: restraint. I think just smooth with the controls. It rewards smooth mm-hmm. inputs. Um, Yeah. Now, what about logged
1: log data on the car? What have you guys got available? What, what system do you guys use for a logger? You said you've got no telemetry, but you can log a lot of stuff. So what system are you using and what sensors have you got on board?
0: Uh, MoTeC C125, uh, and that was something we fitted. So we did all the installation and you know talking about things that we can do on, on our car. Uh, this car comes without a data system, and MoTeC is my brand of choice, so that's what we fitted. Um, we run the C125 with the MoTeC camera. Um, and then as far as sensors go, we run brake pressure, throttle position, steering position, yaw, um, the typical engine stuff. So temps, um, engine temp, water temp, oil temp, uh, clutch and gearbox temp, um, low temperature, like intake air temp.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And then for our own purposes on private testing, we run chalk pots, Um And that's something that I find is extremely, extremely helpful. Um, And we're not allowed to use it on the IMSA weekends, but something that we do run for all our private testing.
1: And does that sound like the teams actually have a little bit of freedom over which logger system, which system they want to use?
0: Yeah, it's not series mandated. Um, Mm -hmm. So if we wanted to run a Pi or something else, that that would have been up to us. Uh, We do have to submit our data. Um, after qualifying and race sessions from our onboard logger. But um, as far as which system we use, yeah, that's uh, that's our choice.
2: In terms of getting the engine data out of the car, are you doubling up on sensors or are you able to freely interface between the C125 and the McLaren ECU?
0: Yeah, so the car is fitted with a FIA six-pin can um, data plug, so we're able to connect to that and then with the right template we can uh, read all the stock sensors off can
2: is that something McLaren and the other manufacturers are forced to provide or they've just been happy enough to help you out with that
0: no the there's for the homologation you have to have certain amount of information on the bus that's available at that data plug so that the series are able to monitor and, and manage that correctly yeah
1: right so that's relatively standardized thing I guess between a lot of those GT3 GT4 cars yeah yeah yeah, okay, yeah. And you mentioned there about shock pots. So what and how useful they are when you go testing? What sort of things are you looking at? Is this about understanding things like ride height, or are you more talking looking at how the dampers themselves are, are behaving? What are you doing with those?
0: Yeah, looking at bump stop interaction, um, understanding the heights relative to that, um, and then using the histograms to you know, see our high speed, low speed balance, um, and then checking for anywhere that we're potentially hanging a wheel um again really helpful for that um looking at uh, roll stiffness distribution front to rear and trying to find that window of what works because one of the things we can change is is spring rates we have um three homologated spring packages uh, for the car so understanding where the car is in a happy window where it's working well and then um able to validate that with the the damper sensors
1: yeah and when you that's a A good point you bring up about roll stiffness distribution for anyone who's not sure. It's essentially looking at the relative stiffness and roll between the front and rear axles. But um, do you find that's uh, something you're changing quite a lot from track to track or the car more or less has a roll stiffness distribution window that it likes to be and you're not really deviating too much from it. You're just sort of moving up and down that spring package and front and rear as you go.
0: Yeah, once we got the car into a, a window that we were happy with, we're not making big changes there. Um, if I had some stiffer options, I would certainly be testing them, but I have to work with what's homologated, and um, that upper limit is um, is where we're running. So
1: Yeah, and as far as, so if, if the springs are, sounds like you're more towards the higher end of the spring package, you, do you have a lot of effectiveness on your anti-roll bar? adjustments or do you find they're, they're not too, not too helpful.
0: Got position one or position two. (laughs) So heaps of
1: adjustments. Does, is there a difference between position one and position two or is it, uh,
0: yeah, Yeah, that's significant.
1: Okay. Yeah. And is, is that working on a blade or sort of adjusting the the length along the the anti-roll bar link or
0: that's it yeah just changing okay. the lever only yeah the whole okay. position
2: so your your driver's making adjustments to those anti-roll bars to account for fuel burn during during a stint or is it more an overall setup change and, and that stays uh to get the balance right for a whole stint irrespective of fuel load for example
0: yeah i mean if we were allowed cockpit adjustable bars, then ah. we could chase fuel burn and, and the like but because it's a uh, it's actually about a six to seven minute adjustment in the pit lane. Um, we don't have that luxury, so we've got to got to set it to work right for its application, whether it be a you know a sticker quality run or a long race run. It, we get one shot at it, and yeah, try to get it right.
2: <laughs> yeah, sorry, I'd assumed you had an cabin adjustment there.
1: Um, yeah, we talked restricted. about looking at your damper histograms. Um, do you have a very wide range of adjustment on the dampers? Is that is also is that something you can revalve if you need to, or is it really just a case of changing the clicks on the dampers themselves?
0: So we are not allowed to revalve. Uh the, the shin stacks, the curves are homologated. Um, so we have to be within that that window. Um, so it's with the Penske damper, it's a needle and seat. Um the fronts do run a fair bit of compression. And when you run the bigger shims in to, to make those values, um, the adjusters start to become fairly powerful. Um, when I build Penske's, if you, if you build them soft, your adjustment window is really small. The, the needle and seat type adjustments don't really seem to respond well to, um, to a soft, soft valving. Um, but in this case, the the updated valving that was released for the car in 2019, um, Mm You know, up front has a fair bit of compression in it and, and the, the changes are significant. Um, and then, consequently, in the rear, uh, we have a fair bit of range on rebound control. Uh, and that's a powerful adjustment. Uh, so, I think it's a lot of it's been just characterizing the car and, and learning what works. And um, yeah. Mm.
1: And the adjustments you do have are these essentially low speed only adjustments or it, it tends to affect it through the. The whole range. I think you said you had two, a compression and a rebound separate circuit.
0: Yeah, it's uh so it's only single adjustment, but I'd call it a global change. I wouldn't isolate it as a higher or low speed change. It's definitely impacting the, mm-hmm. the full range.
2: I think I'll just actually step in there and just clarify for anyone listening as well who doesn't understand the high speed and low speed. We're not talking about vehicle speed. It's um it's the speed of the the damper movement and uh Tim you're probably better to actually talk just really briefly about uh, low speed and high speed versus how that affects the damper
1: yeah so I mean typically people I mean jump in here Andrew can be interested to hear your thoughts but I would say the low speed side of the damper equation is more about controlling the transient handling of the car more of the mechanical aspects of it Um, and uh, when you've got uh, when you're looking at the high speed circuit, sorry, the high speed circuit or the high speed part of the damping curve, it's more about dealing with bumps, uh, potholes, curbs, stuff like this, the handling of these really high speed events. Whereas I would say most of the low speed behavior is more about braking, accelerating, rolling the car in and out of the corners. Is You agree with that, Andrew?
0: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, typically we'd be make, making a low speed isolated adjustment for you know driver feedback. Um, the things the driver's feeling are typically going to be low speed stuff. Um, like you said, you know, pitch roll, um, but because we only have the the single adjustment, we've got to find that compromise between, um, you know, maybe we need a bit more low speed, but we're taking high speed with it, and is it a net gain or loss? And that's just kind of the nature of a single adjustment, right? It's not mm-hmm. going to be right every time.
1: And you typically. Like you mentioned, the aerodynamics are quite powerful on your car, as far as GT4 cars go. Anyway, um, do you think do you tend to use the dampers more for mechanical based reasons, or are you also trying to influence the you know the inclination of the floor and the to the ground and all that stuff, which is obviously a pretty big part of the aerodynamics? Or is it much more of a mechanical perspective you're using the dampers for?
0: It was just a matter of learning the car and how it behaved. Um, you know, once we started getting some time with the car and understanding it, it became clear that, uh, especially with the, the rear shock change, um, it behaved more like an aero car would than, uh, than a mechanical grip car. Uh, so it was just learning what it wanted and how it would respond to the change. And and that's just kind of, you know, in my notes and understanding of, you know, if I'm trying to say adjust a entry understeer condition or something like that, which way I need to go. Um, but yeah, definitely, definitely aero sensitive on the damper adjustment for uh, for the transient phases mm.
1: and when we're talking about aero there it's it's really about just trying to keep the floor of the car within a certain sort of ride and pitch and roll window is that you'd agree with that
0: yep absolutely yeah
1: so do you think is it a kind of thing where you know if you're stuffing from something like entry stability you might be trying to keep the rear of the car a little lower to keep the diffuser working a little harder on corner entry is that that sort of thing you're typically trying to do? Exactly. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Yep. Yeah, yep. Yeah. It's a pretty powerful adjustment. Mm-hmm. Where on a on a car that's not real sensitive, you know, I'd be going the other direction looking for some mechanical grip there with, with less. Um, but that's not how this car mm-hmm. responds.
1: And I was interested in what you brought up before when we were talking about truck pots as well, talking about uh, looking at bump stop engagement. Do you have any ability to change the bump stops or the bump stops homologated or you can change packers or to sort of change that bump stop engagement point?
0: Yeah, the bump stops are open. Uh so it's uh it's, it's an important aspect of it.
1: Based on the length of your answer there, I'd say you guys are probably mucking around with bump stops quite a lot. <laughs> <laughs> yeah,
0: it's it's important for sure. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that speaks
2: volumes for not having said much. <laughs>
1: for sure. No, for sure. Well yeah, for certainly in my experience running um you know Relatively high downforce uh, GTS and stuff um, bump stops certainly one of those areas where there's a lot of gains to be had. And I think if you if you've got the ability to uh, change that, you know, change bump stops, whether it's changing the material of your bump stops, uh, engagement points, that sounds like a pretty useful tuning tool. Particularly if you're really locked in on things like your dampers and your springs and stuff like that, because obviously they can become the bump stops can become pretty influential. And I think maybe for a lot of people, particularly maybe people that don't do this professionally, maybe bump stops get a bit overlooked as far as how powerful they are as a tuning tool. What do you think?
0: Yeah. I mean, honestly before this car, it's not something I really ever had to work with because I had, well, for the longest time had infinite control on spring and wasn't really working with the high downforce cars like you were talking about, Tim. Um, But uh, it's been a cool new chapter for me to, to have an opportunity to really work with them and try to understand them and see the impact in the handling. Um, yeah it's it's been it's been very important um, absolutely
1: could you could you t- without giving away any secrets here but could you talk generally maybe about some of the just the basics of what sort of things what sort of parts of the car handling you might want to be influencing by making a bump stop change or whether that's to control just the the ride height and the straights or is this actually more a mechanical thing as well like you're using it to control transient balance and entry balance and stuff like that because the front's engaged in the bump stops and the rear isn't for example
0: yeah that's where it becomes really powerful is in the transients um and allows us to to change that roll stiffness distribution at corner phases where we you know may want to have more stability or more confidence and and it's also speed sensitive um so You know, typically with the higher speed corners where we want some more confidence in the car, we may want some more front roll stiffness distribution um, to to move the balance slightly towards understeer. uh, And that's something we can do with that. But the flip side is, um, it's easy to get it wrong as well. Um, And if if the engagement's not at the right time, it can upset the car. Um, If you have too much engagement in some of the low speed stuff, you can hurt the mechanical grip. Um, So yeah i think um uh, it's a it's a lot to get it right uh, where with the you know when you're running just a, a mainspring with without it you know no matter where you put the car that is what it is and uh, you're not going to have these these variations and it's not going to be as sensitive from maybe one corner to the next where um with the bump stop yeah i think you need to understand how it's impacting the car
2: I just might just pull it back just a little bit because Mm -hmm. some of our our people listening probably haven't really considered bump stops in an aero sense. And and from a road car perspective and a modified road car taking the tracks, the bump stops sort of something we we tend to probably try and stay away from. So I think it's just worth mentioning here what we're talking about is with uh, high aero downforce. Uh, the ride height of the car basically gets compressed, the car gets lower uh, at the end of a long straight. So uh, you're purposely actually running the car down onto the bump stops to control that ride height and these higher speed sections. So uh, we don't end up with the car bottoming You obviously already mentioned that your spring rate limited as well, but if you didn't have the benefit of being able to tune these bump stops and use them as a tuning tool, uh, you'd have to fit a spring that was stiff enough to keep the car off the track at the high speed sections. And that would adversely affect your mechanical grip and the low speed stuff. So that, that a really sort of brief two, two second rundown on, on what we're talking about here.
0: Yeah, absolutely.
1: For sure. And I think, um, in my experience i I'm not going to push you for what um bump stop brand or, or compounds you're using or anything, but you know I found things like polymer based bump stops. It's something that I found can degrade quite a lot over time as well, and you they actually end up becoming a little bit of a consumable item um you know what what you start with on the the first day you fit into the damper versus if you run them for half a season um yeah both in terms of their stiffness and their internal damping properties as well is that something you've come across or are you guys changing bump stops off and it's not a it's not something you're, you tend to be hurting them too much
0: I haven't run them long enough to get to that point we've been yeah I think we've been cycling through enough different variations of it that uh, we haven't lifed any out but that's something that I hadn't really considered and you know makes a lot of sense when I think about it so maybe we need to start rate, rating them. Uh, relative
1: to life <laughs> just added to your workload there we'll send yeah, you bill okay. for the advice
0: yeah i yeah, appreciate it i'm <laughs> always learning from tim <laughs>
1: um so one of the things i thought would be interesting to get your perspective on obviously you've run lots of different cars at this point throughout your career you've got a new car whether you've just bought it from the manufacturer or whether you've just built it what's your sort of process you're taking this thing to the track for the first time what's your process for learning this thing and and setting it up and what sort of things are you looking for i mean are you looking at the data a lot are you looking driver feedback i mean obviously it's both of those things but what's your process for taking a new car to the, to the track and shaking it down for the first time and starting to learn it
0: so first thing was starts at the workshop um try to go through and understand the car so we're going to do our bump sweeps relative like toe change relative to ride, understand the toe curves of the car, um, measure, you know, motion ratios, all that stuff, understand those values, put it into our spreadsheets and, you know, figure out where we expect to be on the uh, damping ratio, um, shocks on the dyno run through the adjustments, understand what the adjustments mean and, and how powerful they are. See how that aligns to where we would have valved the car. Um, you know, look at our, our optional spring rates and prepare the car on the pad to hopefully we have enough spare dampers that we can set up all this, the optional springs, have everything ready so that we can do you know A to B comparisons. Um, and then, yeah, engine dyno, see the power curves, understand you know where all the shift points are going to be and um, what its characteristics are. Um, and then from there, we'd, you know get to the track driver feedback is such an important tool and um you definitely need you know i think there's a lot of value in having that that pro in the car giving that feedback um and having a relationship with that driver that we can you know trust each other and and understand what he's saying and what he needs and then work through all the adjustments um you start with the basics you know first thing get tire pressures right Um, Mm. you know, it may, it may sound uh, so simple, but sometimes can be, I mean, it's such an important characteristic, uh, and, and and performance part of the car that, you know, you can really get excited about turning knobs and stuff, but if you can't get a baseline and have a consistent tire under you with the right pressure in it, well, then all of what you're doing is, um, skewed. And and I I think that's one of the biggest challenges in what we do is. We're trying to um, compare and evaluate changes in a constantly changing environment. Um, we have a track that's constantly changing, whether it be from ambient conditions or rubbering in or um, dirt coming on. Or, uh, there can be a hundred different things that that track has changed from one lap to the next. And, you know, we want to over, you know, three laps, come in, make a change, go back out and get a true read on um, whether it was better or worse. and that can be difficult when, when you have all these variables, the main one being the tire. I find, and you know, maybe I'd want to go to a circuit with low tire deg if I'm looking to understand the car, where at least I can have a set of tires do the same thing for ten laps instead of two. Because mm-hmm. um, I mean, you could, be, you could, you know, you can go to Laguna and try and do this, um, but I can tell you, there isn't any knob on the car you're going to turn that's going to make it better than what you're losing, and um tire performance right mm. so yeah yeah for sure yeah maybe that's part of my requirement for first understanding of the car as we go do it at a low deg track where at least the tire can be consistent and then we'll start working through through our changes um but i i like to start with the manufacturer's recommended setup sheet you know i the people that are heading up these programs i've worked with a lot of different manufacturers now but they're all really smart people that are doing this and they put a lot of effort into Producing you know good base starting points, so I think it'd be foolish to to not to not take their word on that while you're just starting to understand the car. So that's what I would do. I'd go out there at the base settings with the understandings of the stuff we worked through at the workshop to know what the changes that we're going to try are actually doing, um, and then look to the data and look to the driver feedback. Hopefully they correlate and you know, start working through the stuff and try and find some pace.
1: So, as far as your you know, your setup that you go every racetrack you go to every race event, you're obviously always learning something. Uh, whether it was a different adjustment you tried on the car or something uh, maybe different with a tire compound or a tire pressure, but how much do you find that your setup is evolving from track to track? Like I assume you guys are obviously running on tracks that are varying a lot as far as their characteristics. So there's presumably. You know, each track needs something a little bit different. Do you find yourself finding a good setup at track A and really just taking a slight evolution to track B or are you really kind of starting again each time you head to each, each circuit for each event?
0: I'd say the biggest thing has been learning the surfaces of the different tracks and what they want. Um, there are tracks that you struggle to make temperature on and there are tracks you struggle to keep the tire on. Um, and then adjusting the setup to suit that has for me produced the best results um so yes the car is changing from track to track more with alignment stuff than with uh, with spring uh because again you know we found that seems to work well wherever we go but um definitely on the alignment side we're you know constantly uh, we're, we're making changes from from one track to the next for sure
1: mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and one when- last thing I wanted to talk about before we wrap it up was you've worked with a couple of different tires. Well, I'm sure more than a couple, probably three or four different tire suppliers throughout different race series that you've been part of. How do you find that, that relationship changes? Like obviously you guys are working with Michelin these days. Do you get a lot of information from the tire manufacturer? Do you get a lot of support or help, or is it more about them just trying to make sure that you're not blowing their tires up?
0: We're we're not getting much um, engineering support. With the tires, but I find that's been the case for our Pilot Challenge or its equivalent namesake over the years. Uh, whether it's been Continental or or Michelin or when we ran in World Challenge with Pirelli, um, th- there's some information available, but it it's not extensive. Yeah. Um, budget unlimited, it'd be pretty awesome to go run our own tire testing um, and produce that data for ourselves and our tire size and you know have all of that, but um, that's that's not where we're at at this point
1: so what sort of information would they be giving you is it a case of obviously these got your pressure limits your camber limits but are they giving you like vertical stiffness data about how you know what the effective spring rate of the tire is or anything like that or what are, what are they giving you
0: yeah vertical stiffness is available and that's about it yeah um so no camber versus slip or target slip angles or anything like that mm-hmm. um so nothing to be able to produce like a tire model um
1: well, for sure. But I think this is the situation that the vast majority of people racing, whether they're doing it professionally or not, are probably finding themselves in, you know, it's only really at the really high end where you've got not just budget, but people available to use that data as well, you know. It's it's all very well to have it. I I've, I've certainly been involved in a number of teams in my career where we had all sorts of stuff like that. We we didn't we didn't do much with it. <laughs>
0: sure yeah
1: do you think um, if we start to wrap this up a little bit now Andrew do you think as far as a an overall discussion of, of how to approach setting up a car or, and car it up philosophy in general anything else yeah you know, the topics you think we sort of missed or you think we should we should touch on before we start wrapping up
0: I'd say one of the biggest things is to not be afraid to make a big change that's something that I've struggled with um, at times and because you only get so few opportunities to make a change um at least with the schedules we run in you, i find i have to push myself to to make a big swing to make sure it's something the driver's going to feel to make sure it's something that's going to show on the data so then we can at least understand the direction that it forced and if we need to find a compromise in between then then we can make an educated decision on that but you know the reality is, you know, three, four clicks are typically not enough that they're going to produce something significant. Um, and when you only get really one or two chances in a session to make a change, um, make it count and learn something from it. And don't be afraid to go too far um, to at least make sure that the the change shows its true direction. Mm. Um or that if it's completely not powerful as well, like go go big enough that, that it, it teaches you something. Mm.
2: Is that one of those areas where working with uh, a better quality of professional driver who's a bit more sensitive to, you know, as you say, maybe four clicks of adjustment uh, can allow you to sort of see that direction without needing to go so large or even with a pro driver, you still want to make a, a significant change like that?
0: I think it comes back to like we were talking about the tire degradation again, because unless you have the budget that you're running sticker to sticker to sticker comparisons, that three clicks could be lost in the tire performance from the in lap to the out lap. Yeah. Um, and then it just gets skewed. Right. And the other thing is I think you, even the, the best pros, you still want to help with their confidence in what they're feeling in the car. And as an engineer, Probably the best way you can do that is make sure the change is big enough for them to feel it. Um, because if you just keep throwing these small changes at a driver and saying, okay, tell me, and it's not doing anything, you're just, you're not helping their confidence either, right? That I really feel like that trust in that engineer driver relationship is really important. I never try to put my drivers in a situation where, um, like, I've never once, told a driver to go out and try something without making a change. Like if I'm, if I'm asking them to try something is because I made the change. Do you know what I mean? Like mm-hmm. it's easy as an engineer to,
1: as far as not, not tricking them with a blind change or something like that.
0: Right. Right. I want, I want that confidence to be there to know that, you know, every time I say I'm doing something, it's, it's in their best interest for them mm-hmm. to, you know, hopefully find performance and sure. not, uh, put them in an awkward situation yeah I
1: mean I think there's plenty of times where you do make a change and maybe it's not big enough and the driver does feel like you say oh how was that how did that feel and turn next whatever it was and they probably feel a lot of pressure to say something a lot of you know these people are they're professionals but they're also people too you know like they feel the pressure to say oh yeah that was much better (laughs) you know really helped them the entry stability that was great but like you know maybe there was nothing there so I think you're right you know as far as not, you know, giving them a fair go as well.
0: Sure. Yeah.
1: So I think if we, if we sort of start wrapping it up here, Andrew, what, uh, what's the future look like for, look like for AWA at the moment, obviously you guys have got a fair bit of the season left to run. What's on the, what's on the horizon for you guys?
0: Yeah. So our customer has expressed interest in continuing on with the McLaren program in 2022 and potentially uh, further than that, which is outstanding. Um, you know, working with Ori has been fantastic and I'm excited for that to continue. Uh, he's an absolutely great guy, does a great job in the car and um, you know allows us to do things the right way. Um, and I think the results and success are, are speaking to that. So super grateful for that opportunity um, and, and keen to continue that. Um, we've been having some discussions with uh, the idea of a second car with with some other drivers. Uh, so we'll see where that goes, but um, at the end of the day, we have we have the program we're running and and commitment to continue that. So I want to make sure we do the absolute best job we can with that and uh, and keep that going.
1: Fantastic. One of the things I think this podcast is going to be great for is maybe for people that are interested in working in the industry professionally, industry professionally. Um, you know, maybe don't exactly know how to crack into it. It does seem like a bit of a scary beast from the outside sometimes. So it'd be great if you could give me your perspective on, you know, if if you were talking to a younger Andrew right now that was interested in getting to a position similar to what you are, what would your advice be to, for what sort of path to follow and, and things to think about along the way?
0: I think from the schooling point of view, the formal SAE is still invaluable. I think what you can learn there will absolutely get you uh, a good start in in the sport. Um, and then I think when you're just looking to get into it, um, every role on the team, um, has lessons to learn from whether it be tires or fuel or, um, even, you know, pit equipment setup. whatever the role may be, I think if you have an opportunity to get into any of those roles, take it, um, because you're going to learn something that's really valuable that you know, even if your you know goal is to be a race engineer, well, when I look back, if I if I didn't understand each process, hadn't done each process, I wouldn't be able to do what I do today um, at least to the same capacity. So I think um, you know, engineering and, and strategy roles may be few and far between, but um, I think there's always teams that are looking for people to to get in at the ground level and do some of the hard work. Um, and don't be afraid to start there and and there's yeah there's a lot to learn
1: great advice anything else from you andre
2: no no i think i think
1: we're good fantastic well um if people want to check you guys out see a bit more what you guys are doing at awa where would they be able to find you on the socials andrew
0: yeah awa racing team on instagram and on facebook and then our websites awa.team
1: fantastic awesome hey look i really appreciate your time today it was a really interesting discussion as always, learn something from you as we go. So I really appreciate your time.
0: Thank you so much, guys. Really appreciate it. Awesome. All the best for the rest of the season. Thank you. I'll try and keep this going.
2: Very good. All right, thanks, Andrew. Cheers, mate. Alright that concludes our interview and before we sign off I just wanted to mention for anyone who's been perhaps hiding under a rock and hasn't heard of High Performance Academy before, we are an online training school and we specialise in teaching a range of performance automotive topics, everything from engine tuning and engine building through to wiring, car suspension and wheel alignment, data analysis and race driver education. Now remember you've got that coupon code, you can use podcast75 at the checkout to get $75 Dollars off the purchase of your first course, you'll find our full course list at hpacademy.com forward slash courses. Important to mention that when you purchase a course from us, that course is yours for life as well, it never expires, you can rewatch the course as many times as you like, whenever you like. The purchase of a course will also give you 3 months of access to our gold membership, that gives you access to our private members only forum which is the perfect place to get answers to your specific questions. You'll also get access to our regular weekly members webinars which is where we touch on a particular topic in the performance automotive realm, we dive into that topic for about an hour, if you can watch live you can ask questions and get answers in real time.